Our scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 6. This is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Brandon Lutz. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for those who are watching on the live stream. Uh, we know there are a lot of things you could be doing right now, so it really does mean a lot to us that you're worshiping with us. We're in the second week of our sermon series on 1 John. Last week, Drew introduced uh, 1 John to us. And 1 John introduces a, a number of tests that help our hearts to see if our faith is the real thing. Last week, we started with the first test, do you have the gospel right? Do you have the gospel right? And we're going to continue looking at this question uh, for, for the first half of this sermon. And then we're going to shift to the next question of the text of this book. What does your obedience look like? So the question we're introduced to in this passage and throughout 1 John is how can we know that we have a genuine faith? How can we know that we truly know Jesus? How can I be assured that I'm a Christian? We all go through seasons of doubts, moments of questioning God, moments of questioning our faith. That is a, a normal aspect of being a believer. But to answer and address those doubts, where do you run? Where do you go? The letter of 1 John has the phrase, by this we know, by this we may know, repeated 15 times. 15 times, that is what he is going after in this book. John is writing to his children of the faith. Notice how he just doesn't say little children, but he actually claims them. He says, my little children. His children do not know, they are not assured, they are lacking certainty if their faith is genuine. They are hearing false gospels and their hearts are being tempted and charmed. For us today, most of us, if not all of us, we fall into two kinds of people. There are those of us who don't know that we don't know Jesus. There are those of us who don't know that we don't know Jesus. Let me unpack that. There are many of us who think we have the real thing, that we're believers, we're Christians, but our assurance is based off of something other than the faith in the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. There are those of us listening here today who are unaware that they don't know Jesus. For others of us listening and here today, there are those of us who don't know that we actually know Jesus. I'm going to punk, unpack this one too. Many of us live in this uncertainty of whether or not our faith is true. The weight of our sin, past or present, blinds us from the certainty that comes from faith in Jesus. Or maybe, maybe there's that one sin, that one sin, internal or external, that you just can't seem to shake. You say, God, if, I, if my faith is true, then how come this is still going on in my heart? If you're not a Christian and you know that you don't believe in Jesus hearing this sermon, can I speak to you just for a quick second? 
My hope for you this morning is that you would, you would see and come to know there's something inside of you that is off. There's something inside of you that is broken. But in realizing your brokenness, in realizing that there's something broken inside of you, I hope you would be met by Jesus. We all have this natural bent to place our assurance of faith in external achievements and worldly longings, or our lack of assurance comes from our want of external achievements and worldly longings. So how can we know? How can we be assured of our faith? Is there something else that we can base our assurance on? Our scripture passage this morning points us to our assurance and begins to answer this question of how we can know that our faith is genuine. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is our advocate. Says that in verse 2. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is our assurance that cannot be lost and cannot be taken away under any circumstance. Our assurance is not based on us or anything that we can or cannot do. Our assurance is on our Savior, an advocate who has already guaranteed that for us. So when you start to see and understand how truly broken and sinful you are, and then behold the Lamb of God who takes away your sin, it is truly going to change you and it's going to change how you live. When you begin to behold Jesus, you're going to want to walk with him and be like him. That's where the scripture is taking us this morning. That's where I hope to lead us this morning as well. As you can see in your outline, we're going to walk through this passage by starting to see the danger of sin. And from there, we'll see how we can be delivered by an advocate. And we'll end with the diligence to walk with Jesus. The first two points stem from the first two verses. And the last point is the last four verses. So first, let's look at the danger of sin. So now this first point is going to line up more with the first group I mentioned in the introduction, individuals who don't know that they don't know Jesus. Now I realize this seems really weird. It seems really off to just take a moment and consider sin. Our world and our culture have been trying to reframe and redefine sin for us. And in a lot of ways, the American church, our church, has fallen prey to its deception. But the gospel is bad news before it is good news. So if you desire to know Jesus and walk with him, then you have to see your sin for what it is. So here's the danger of sin as it relates to our passive scripture and with the struggle of not knowing that you don't know Jesus. The danger for us here is that we can be complacent or unworried of sin. Another way to put it is that we compromise, we make deals with ourselves that negate or minimize our sin as if there's some kind of exchange system, some kind of barter system. I've been really good with this, so I can be bad with that. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this, what is sin? What is sin? And where you go to answer that question, where you first go, where does your heart go to answer that question, may reveal to you that you may be a person who doesn't know that you don't know Jesus. Do you run to your own definition of how you want to define sin? Do you run to what celebrities or Instagram or our culture, what they say sin is? Or do you run to scripture to find and understand what sin is? In Genesis 3, we see sin birthed when we chose to live for ourselves rather than God. Sin is is disobedience to God and rebellion against God. I think it's really easy for us to look at sin and see it as disobedience. A lot of us probably in this room would agree to that 100%. But to call it also rebellion, to make war, to declare God your enemy, that intensifies sin a little bit. Romans 1, 18-25 tells us that sin is an attempt to be in control and to control our lives. Romans 1, 21, 
their thinking became futile and their hearts were darkened due to sin. Sin is an aligning of our hearts and desires in such a way that we build our identity on anything but God. We start trying to achieve our worth and happiness on anything besides God. And again, it isn't just, it isn't just disobedience, but it's just as much building your identity on anything but God. If you are in rebellion against God, then you have given your allegiance to another. Let me give you an example of this. If a boyfriend or girlfriend were sleeping together, then they are being disobedient to God. Most of us would probably agree with that. But it is just as much a sin in that they are trying to let their romance save them. That they're getting their their sense of worth and assurance from another. That That gives them things that they should only be looking for in God. Tim Keller says, Sin is not only a violation of law, but also a violation of love. Darcy Steinke is a lady who walked away from the faith. She moved to New York City, she entered the life of club hopping, sexual obsession, and then she became a very successful writer. But she continued, however, to be extremely restless and unfulfilled. And in in one of her books, she summarizes the main issue in her life when she came to this realization. She says this, one has only the choice between God and idolatry. If one denies God, then one is worshiping some things of this world in the belief that one sees them only as such. But in fact, in fact, though unknown to oneself, imagining the attributes of divinity in them. Though unknown to oneself, imagining the attributes of divinity in them. Though unknown to you, you are giving your heart to things that only you can find rest and fulfillment and satisfaction in God. So how are you prone to do this? In what ways do you find it easy to find rest, fulfillment, and satisfaction in something other than God? For me, it could be exercise or the gym, working out. It could be uh, my sense of uh, fulfillment just in what I'm getting out of ministry and just students and just the life of the church. It could also be uh, my sense of fulfillment and satisfaction coming from whether or not I feel adored by my wife. How many of those things are bad things? See the danger of sin? One of the reasons we give our allegiance to another over God is that we have the wrong view of who God is. So often we picture God as this angry old man with his arms crossed, a scowl on his face when we sin. And it isn't that God isn't angry at sin and hates the destruction that it brings. But what if, what if we also recognize that just as much sin breaks the heart of God? Picture a spouse and their broken heart after being cheated on. Sin breaks God's heart because he knows the destruction that it brings between him and you. It breaks his heart because he sees the distance it creates between him and you, and he, he sees the death that it creates and puts between him and you. God created us to be in a special, unique relationship with him, to walk with him, to enjoy life and creation with him, and we have traded that in for something that wants to enslave, devour, and kill us. In Genesis 4, we read that sin is crouching at your door, its desires to have you. 1 Peter 5, we read that the enemy of the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What is sin? Sin is much more than just disobedience to God. If we only define sin as disobedience to God, then we fall into the trap that many of the Pharisees in the Bible fell prey to. Sin is also finding your identity in something 
other than being a child of your heavenly father. It's, it's wor- sin is worshiping something the creator has made other than creator himself. And sin breaks the heart of our father. The danger of sin is that it's trying to put horse blinders on us so that we only view and define sin as in a much smaller and narrow view. Satan and sin win when we do this. Luke 15, 7 tells us that there's a party in heaven when a sinner repents. Now, I'm going to give myself a little bit of freedom here. Could there possibly be a party in hell when we don't repent because we have made little of our sin, therefore making little of Jesus? Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote many sermons on John's three letters. He says this of sin. Look at all the misery and wretchedness it produces. Look at all the havoc that it makes. If only we could see the real nature of sin, we should hate it. So it behooves us to look at it and examine it. It must be avoided because of its ugliness and because of its twisted and perverted character. He also writes, Sin is the terrible and foul thing that caused such suffering to my blessed Lord. The thing that brought the Son of God from heaven to earth, the problem that caused him to sweat drops of blood. It was sin that produced the agony and the suffering and the shame of the cross. That is what sin does. When you begin to redefine and think of sin in this light, how does that strike you? Were you caught of thinking too lightly of your sin? It is only in thinking too lightly of your sin and the brokenness of the world that you could read the first verse and interpret it that it's possible for for us not to sin. Is sin a big deal to God? I hope your answer, even just in this short amount of time, is an emphatic yes. Is sin a big deal to you? Was that a soft yes or an emphatic yes? You know the right answer, but what does your heart tell you? The danger of sin is real, and it shouldn't be taken lightly as many of us do, but now I want us to turn the corner and look at our second point, deliverance by an advocate. The first point was hopefully more helpful to those who struggle to see that they might not know Jesus and see their need for him. The second point will hopefully be more helpful to those who struggle to believe that they already know Jesus. One way of distinguishing these two is the first group has a very small view or no view of their sin. The second group has a very big, a very magnified view of their sin. So point number two, deliverance by an advocate. When you don't know that you know Jesus. When you live in a place where you view your sin so much and too much that you have fallen into this pit of misery, despair, hopelessness and depression and it has actually robbed you of your awareness of your advocate first john 2 uh, middle verse 1 through 2 if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world this is a question to those of us who are aware of our sin and failure those who are aware of their own unworthiness How is my relationship in standing with God going to be restored when I sin? How can I be forgiven? You know, if you're like me, then you you far too often hear the whisper of Satan the accuser saying, you have no right to go back to God. You've been walking in the light and now you've fallen into sin yet again. How can God forgive you? You can't go back. Are any of you familiar with Lord of the Rings? We're going to make Drew proud here for a second. In the second Lord of the Rings, uh, the two towers, 
Smeagol and Gold in the same character. He's having this conversation with himself, and he's trying to convince uh, Smeagol that he's unworthy, and he says, nobody likes you. You don't have any friends. You're a liar, you're a thief, and a murderer. How many of you, when you think about your sin, it's way too easy for that playlist just to start spinning? And you hear, you hear your brokenness. It's on repeat. If this is you, then you have to hear this. You are right. You're right. Your sin is great. Your sin is overwhelming, and guess what? We aren't even fully aware how broken we really are. But, but remember, the gospel is bad news before it is good news. My friends, lift up your head. Stop staring inward and downward, and behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. That's what we're turning to now. We're going to look at three truths of Jesus' advocacy for us and over us. The first truth we know of his advocacy is that there is no forgiveness except from Jesus and through him alone. When you read Genesis 3 and learn the consequences of our sin, who does the scripture point us to? He will crush your head, is what God says to the serpent. When Jesus is first introduced in the New Testament in Matthew 1, he is given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. There is no forgiveness of sin apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, our advocate. So what is an advocate? Martin Lloyd-Jones writes that an advocate is the one who represents another. He stands before a court and he presents the case of someone else. He represents this person and puts forward the plea. And the Lord Jesus Christ is for all who believe on him and trust in him, an advocate with the Father. Isaiah 9.6 tells us that Jesus is a wonderful counselor and defender. Again, I want to address a, a, another just misrepresentation that we typically give to God the Father with this metaphor. We too often make God this angry judge who is just waiting to throw down the gavel and declare us guilty. Does God hate sin? Yes, of course. It's the opposite of who God is and what he desires for us in his creation. John 3, 16 and 17 that we read earlier. God so loved the world that he sent his son. 1 John 4, 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son. That doesn't sound like an infuriating judge to me. That sounds like genuine love and care for another. There is no forgiveness except from Jesus and him alone. The second truth we know of his advocacy is that we have an advocate who sees us and understands us. In Hebrews 4 and 5, we read that the very Son of God became man in order that he might understand us, in order that he might sympathize with us and understand our brokenness. An advocate is someone who meets you where you are at and comforts you. There's this older movie, uh, it's called The Devil's Advocate. It's real old, 1997. It's rated R, it's not safe for the kids. Um, movie, Keanu Reeves, Al Pacino. Um, Keanu Reeves is this hotshot lawyer. He's a de defense uh, lawyer and he has not lost a case. So we're gonna jump right to the end of the movie. Again, it's like almost 25 years, so I'm not sorry that I'm gonna spoil it for you. Um, in the end, he is representing a client who he knows is guilty of very disgusting crimes and sins. So he stands up in the court. He addresses the judge and he says, Your Honor, I can no longer represent my client. I need to be replaced as his counsel. And of course, the courtroom 
uh, goes crazy and his client is infuriated at him. But here's what I want to emphasize here. Jesus, your advocate, isn't just standing in your place defending you unknowingly. He knows the depth of your depravity even more so than you do. He sees the deep, dark, hidden corridors and clouds of your heart, and he still gladly chose to be your advocate. How liberating is that for your soul? The third truth we know of his advocacy is rooted in the description Jesus Christ is given at the end of verse 1, the righteous. This is where your confidence comes from. This is where your assurance comes from. Though Jesus became man, he never sinned. He was without blemish or thoughtless righteousness is what we sing. And this is why it could only be Jesus who is our advocate in the presence of God. No one who is unworthy can plead the case before another. Before I can have confidence in my advocate, I must know that he is accepted of God and can stand in the presence of God. Romans 8.34 tells us that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us, interceding for you. Jesus is in the throne room of God and said, I am the fulfillment of the law. I have taken the sin debt that they owe, and I have already paid for it on the cross. I received their sin, they received my righteousness. As we read in Romans 3.26, this is how God is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God no longer has anything against us if you are in him. MLJ, again, I've quoted him throughout already, he said in a way we are way too scared to say of, God would be unjust if he did not forgive my sin. I'm going to say that one more time. God would be unjust if he did not forgive your sin, if you are in him. To the ones who far too often think you're too dirty, you're too out of reach, of the saving grace of Jesus, God would be unjust, unjust if he did not forgive you of your sin. Preach this gospel truth to your heart. For every one look at yourself and your sin, would you take ten looks to Jesus and his righteousness, what he has done on your behalf? See what kind of love the Father has given to us. You have been adopted and declared to be a child of God, and so you are. Now, hard question, uh, verse 2 may ask us is this, uh, did Christ's sacrifice save the whole world? Very short answer to a very uh, long and big question, no. Scriptures teach us that his sacrifice saved only the elect. All I really want to say in regards to our book and our chapter right now is John is writing this letter to the church, not the entire world. If you want to talk uh, more about this later, I would ask you to find Jeff or Jonathan. They'd love to talk to you more about this. Now, if you believe and trust in the truth of these first two points, your great sin, but your even greater advocate, this is going to change you inside and out. This is going to change who you are. So this brings us to our third and final point as we look to wrap this up. One of the main reasons John is writing this letter is so that we can have an assurance that we know that we know Jesus. 2 Peter 1 tells us to make our calling and election sure, but there's something more here that is revealed to us in 1 John 2. Christians are people who know that they know. John tells us at the end of his letter the reason he is writing all this is so that we would believe in Jesus and so that we would know that we have eternal life. Yet we're so opposed to this notion. Why is that? It feels arrogant. It feels like we're claiming something that is not rightfully ours to claim. And that, my brothers and sisters, 
is why God's grace is so captivating and moving. Do you know Jesus, the one who has granted and given you access to this grace? When you pray, is it like writing a letter to Santa? Or do you know who you're talking to? This is not an intellectual exercise in knowing. I know a lot of facts about my wife. She's beautiful. She's a couple inches taller than me. That's pro- she's probably three, if, if I'm being honest. Uh, she grew up in Sanford, Florida. But that doesn't mean that I know my wife's heart. That doesn't mean that I have a relational intimacy with her where we know each other deeply. Many of us have grown up in the church and we've grown up in Southern culture. We know a lot of facts about Jesus. He was born in... Oh, boy. <laughs> he was born in Bethlehem. We'll, we'll blame it on the mask. We'll blame it on the mask. He was born in Bethlehem. His parents were marrying Joseph. Uh, as a kid, I love the story where he flipped tables and cracked a whip in the temple. We even know that he performed miracles, including raising people from the dead. But that doesn't mean we have relational intimacy with him. Do you have an intimate relationship with Jesus? One of the best parts of an intimate relationship with him is that we are united. Or as our pastor says, we are in him. Throughout the scriptures, Christ is described as the groom and we, the church, are his bride. And as a bride and groom begin to share their lives together, they start the process of joining with God and transforming their spouse into the most beautiful, glorious version of themselves. The person God has always intended them to be. If you are in Christ, if you have an intimate relationship with him, then this is what he has already started and in the process of doing with you. And how we join him in this process is by keeping his commandments and walking in the same manner as he walked. So what is your life like? How do you live? Are you keeping his commandments? Do you view his commandments as a list of crimes where failure leads to fines and imprisonment? Or is it more that you are concerned to be living a Christian life as fully as you can? Are you joining Jesus in his journey and bringing you to the greatest degree of glory on this side of heaven? Verse 6 says, walk in the same way as Jesus walked. How did Jesus walk? (laughs) Not the way the world wanted him to back then, and definitely not the way we would want him to walk today. He was meek and lowly. He was centered on pleasing God and not man. He was focused on putting the other's needs ahead of his own. He cared for the poor, the needy, and the oppressed. He was a man of sorrows, and he mourned over the sin and brokenness of this world. Is that what your walk looks like? You know, I I can honestly say for the first time uh, in my life and in my heart, I would say 2020 is probably the first real time I felt this desperation for myself and the world for Jesus. His love for God and his love for us is without question. His obedience, his walk was evidence to this. What does your walk give evidence to? Do you know that you know him? Does your life give evidence to this? Let me close with this quote, uh, this true and hopeful quote from John Newton, the famous hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace. I am not what I ought to be, but I am not what I once was. And it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we adore you, uh, and we just worship you, that you are a God who invites us uh, to be in a relationship with you. 
and not just any relationship. You wanted to make us unique. We were the very good part of your creation acts. You wanted, you wanted to make us your sons and your daughters, and so you did. And yet we confess that we so quickly just want to do life on our, in our own way. We so quickly want to run away from our creator. We so quickly want to run away from the very one who gives us life to things that don't give us life, to things that will actually devour, destroy, and kill us. And so, Father, we confess. We confess we, make, we think too lightly of our sin, making it merely about obedience or making it nothing at all. Father, we take too lightly how sin wraps and warps our identity. But as we look and see throughout your word, so often when our brokenness is pointed out, we are so quickly pointed to Jesus. We have a Savior who is everything we could never be. He was righteous. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, and he gladly has chosen to endure the cross for us, his Father's children. So, Father, would you make us more aware of who Jesus is, what he has done, and how that moves our hearts towards obedience. Father, too often the world looks at us, looks at Christians, and they see our walk, and they say, we want nothing to do with them or who they call Savior. So, Father, would we, would we be a church family? Would we be your children who the opposite of that is true? Where our friends, where our neighbors, where our family, even strangers see us. They see our walk, and they want to know you. They want to come to know you. Father, would it, would it be your grace, would it be your love, your truth, that moves in us in such a way that we know that we know you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So do you know that you know him? Wherever you're at in this journey, wherever you're at in answering that question of your heart and soul, uh, please know that he meets you wherever you're at. And not just that, but he goes out with us. So please receive the Lord's blessings he sends us out. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord, may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.